0: 20 seconds or so here. I guess we're order. Welcome to the uh, computer security seminar from um, Purdue University. Uh, today's speaker is uh, Professor uh, uh, w- w- William uh, Winsboro from uh, from. University. Uh, George Mason University. And he will talk on um, access. Oh, sorry, attribute-based access uh, control. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. So the area of my research is uh, policy-based security and privacy for distributed systems. Uh, in particular, I'm interested in situations where we have decentralized authority and uh, each principle in the system has the opportunity to contribute some policy statements that together compose to form the, uh, or to de- define the behavior of the system as a whole. So today I'll be talking about uh, some work that I've been doing for the last several years in developing flexible and scalable access control for decentralized and collaborative environments, as well as open systems like the Internet. So the approach that we take to um, making authorization decisions is to base them on attributes of the resource requester, such as rights that they have to access specific resources, or roles that they occupy in their home organizations, qualifies that they might have, like uh, degrees, or other characteristics, like their age or nationality. And um, credentials are then used to uh, establish someone's authorizations offline. These credentials consist of signed policy statements about the attributes of uh, specific individual's principles identified in the credentials, or else they can also contain uh, rules for deriving attributes. What I'll talk about in today's lecture is three things. First, I'll introduce an authorization policy language that supports collaboration in decentralized and open systems. And then I'll talk about uh, analysis techniques that we've developed for understanding and managing how uh, policy delegates authority among various principles in the system. And then finally, I'll talk about the problem that Because the credentials may have uh, sensitive information in them, they themselves may have to be the subject of access control. So we'll begin with policy language design. And uh, this is work uh, that I did with Ninghui Li and John Mitchell, which was published in uh, the 2002 Oakland Conference. Um, I'll talk about the requirements for a language, give a a couple of examples, introduce the syntax and semantics. So first and foremost, what we want from an attribute-based authorization language is the ability to decentralize the authority to define attributes. Basically, we want to have the opportunity for lots of different people to make claims about. Uh, principles within the system and then we'll utilize policy and credentials from any sources in making authorization decisions. So policies are one uh, person may delegate authority to another for the purposes of uh, controlling some resource and this could be um, delegation to a specific principle by name but we'd also like to be able to support delegation to principles that uh, satisfy certain attributes. So this is not by name, but by attribute. We want to be able to support the inference of attributes from one or more other attributes, like when we would uh, derive access rights based on roles or other characteristics. We'd also like to support parameterization so that a, uh, an age attribute could actually have a numeric field in it and say you know, what the age value is. Uh, We'd like to be able to support thresholds, which is basically a kind of voting, and separation of duties, which is a uh, technique that can be used to um, reduce the or make fraud more difficult to commit. So the language that we'll be working with for this talk is called RT, for Role-Based Trust Management. RT is actually a family of policy languages. The simplest member of which, RT0, uh, satisfies all the requirements on the previous slide except for the three shown here, it doesn't support parameterization, thresholds, or separation of duties. Those features are supported by other members of the RT family, but we won't talk about them in today's talk. So here are four example RT0 credentials. Uh, The first one is issued by EPUB, an electronic publishing house, which says that students at state U are entitled to a student discount. So EPUB uh, is a principal that has a a key that he can use for the purpose of signing this uh, statement, turning it into a credential that can be verified offline. And the credential will also contain the. the public key of State U, which can be used then to check the signatures on the second and third credentials uh, in which State U says that somebody's a student if the university registrar says that they're registered for either a part-time or a full-time load. Down here in the last credential, the registrar says that Alice is registered for a part-time load. So that's effectively her student ID. And it can be combined with the other three Uh, the the other um, red credentials here to prove that Alice is authorized for EPUB student discount. So Alice could present these credentials and uh, obtain the discount uh, without uh, the authorizer ever having uh, heard of State U or the U Registrar or knowing their public keys ahead of time. Now in the example I just gave, Delegation is made to a particular individual, uh, an individual university, state U. But in general, you might like to be able to support delegation to uh, any university. So, EPUB would like to be able to accept the student IDs of uh, students from arbitrary universities. Now, how would you do that? You know, you could put in your policy every single university and um, say that their students are uh, authorized. But this presents many problems, not the least of which is maintenance, but maybe the biggest is that um, EPUB is probably not an authority on what's a, a real university. You know, Does uh, a mechanic school or a beautician school or something like that qualify? Well, the authorities on who, what's a real university are accrediting agencies or accrediting boards, excuse me. Um, so in the second credential EPUB delegates to uh, FAB, a fictitious accrediting board, saying that uh, anybody that's FAB accredited is considered to be a university by EPUB. And since State U has a uh, credential that says that he's accredited, um, all right, here we go. Right here, EPUB.university can include people like State U. So if uh, Alice shows using credentials like that we saw already that she is a State U student, then uh, she would be entitled to the student discount. So the basic structure in RT is a role, which has the form uh, A.R, in which A is a principal and R is a role name. There are four different kinds of statements that A can issue in order to define who's actually in his role, A.R. The first one a dot r includes d just says that the principal d is a member. the second one a delegates some authority to b he's saying anybody that is in B's b 's br r one rule is in a dot r so a dot r con- contains b dot r one as a sup- as a subset. The third form of statement says that a dot r includes b.r2 for all b in a dot r1. So b would be like the university in our previous example. And then the, the fourth statement says that uh a dot r includes anybody that's in both a1.r1 and a two dot r2. So that's basically a form of conjunction. Now the first three uh statements together uh, give rise to a language that's equivalent to SUDSI, secure distributed, I'm sorry, simple distributed security infrastructure, um, a language that was proposed in, I think it's 1996 and later sort of combined with uh, spooky, simple public key infrastructure. Um, But I mention this because uh, a a fair amount of work has been done on um, how to, provide a semantics for Sudsy. Um, We'll actually take a different approach to providing the semantics for RT. And I'll, in my next slide, uh, give you some explanation as to why that is. But in in this slide, uh, I'll briefly show you the construction of that semantics. It's based on constructing a logic program, in fact, a uh, restricted logic program uh, called a data log program. and the way that it works is that for each statement in the policy, you get one clause in the, uh, the data log program. So um, the first form of statement, A dot R includes D, gets translated into a, uh, uh, the simplest form of clause, called a, often called a fact, uh, in which um, the M is the membership predicate. And this just says that D is included in a.r. The second form in which uh, a.r includes b.r1 is translated into uh, something that just uses the membership predicate to say almost exactly the same thing. So this little symbol right here is read if. And this says that x is in a.r if x is in b.r1. That captures the intuition that I think you'll agree is uh, natural. In the third form, we want to say that, well, it's it's just translated into uh, x is in a dot r if there exists a y in a dot r1 such that x is in y dot r2. And uh, finally, intersection just turns into conjunction. So now uh, the semantics uh, is defined in terms of logical entailment. So if you uh, have d a member of A.R in uh, all models of the program, then the semantics says that D is in the role A.R. So one of the neat things about using uh, logic programming to construct the semantics is that it makes the complexity results really easy. Uh, Datalog has been studied a great deal, and um, it can be evaluated in uh, a time that's a small polynomial. Um, Other semantic foundations don't uh, support features that we really want, like for instance um, even intersection. So the uh, string rewriting and pushdown systems are approaches that have been used for uh, providing or evaluation of Sudsy. And um, neither one of them is really uh, suitable in a context where you've got intersection. Moreover, Using the a logical, the logic programming approach uh, enables one to easily extend the language to incorporate uh, those extra features like parameters, th- thresholds, and separation of duty. So at this point, I'd like to switch gears from uh, talking about the basic language and tell you a little bit about uh, security analysis. So the goal here is the understanding and management of these distributed authorization policies. The the reason is that um, authors of policy statements need assistance in understanding the global impact of statements that they add or revoke. Indeed, uh, others may also need assistance in understanding the the situation with a a policy. They need to understand who could get access to what and uh, who could be denied based on the fact that the, uh, the policy may actually evolve uh, in a situation where um, not all, I mean, no given entity controls the entire policy and hence it is going to evolve beyond the control of any one entity. So um, I'm particularly uh, proud about this work in part because uh, it's going to be published in the Journal of the ACM. And again, my uh, co-authors are Ninghui Li and John Mitchell. Um, In this part of the talk, I'll I'll give you some background on the security analysis problem. I'll uh, describe the abstract case of security analysis for trust management, and then uh, make it concrete for the uh, language RT. Then I'll discuss a couple of usage scenarios and the complexity results that we obtained. So um, security analysis actually has a long history of study. Um, Going back 30 years, a sub-problem called safety analysis uh, has been studied. And in that work, the access control model was based on an access control matrix. So the idea with an access control matrix is that uh, rows correspond to subjects, columns correspond to objects, and the cells t- give you the access rights that, each, uh, that the subject has with respect to that object. Now, this forms the state of a, uh, a state machine whose transitions correspond to the execution of commands of the form shown here. A command tests to see whether several uh writes are in the are in given access cells, and then, if so, executes a, a sequence of operations that can enter new writes into cells, remove writes from cells, add or delete columns or rows. And now in this model, uh, a system such as this is deemed to be safe if there's no sequence of commands that gives a given right A to a particular subject S on object O, where A, S, and O are all given. And Harrison, Rousseau, and Ullman showed in uh, 1976 that, this, that the determining whether a system such as this is safe is actually an undecidable problem. So there was subsequently a fair amount of work trying to figure out um, alternative systems that uh, would give a decidability. And um, it's very interesting, I think, that uh, in the trust management context, what we found is that the analogous problem can, is not only decidable, but it's decidable in polynomial time. So... Let's take a look at what the analogous problem is in trust management systems. Basically, evolution of the system, or transitions, um, now corresponds to the fact that an individual doesn't control the entire policy state. And other parts of the policy state can be changed beyond his control, or in an uncontrolled way. And to capture this notion of uh, uncontrolled changes, we introduce the, the idea of a restriction rule, R, which says how a policy state P can, be, can evolve into another policy state, P prime. And given this framework, we can articulate two different forms of uh, analysis problem. An existential analysis problem asks whether there exists a P prime reachable from P in which a uh, certain query holds from P prime. And a universal analysis problem asks whether in all policy states reachable from P, uh, the query holds. So let me give you a few examples of the kinds of things that you can uh, phrase this way. Can Alice ever get access to the database? This is a simple safety question because basically you don't want Alice to have access and you're worried about it. Could Bob? Will Bob always have access to the database? Now, presumably, Bob is somebody that needs to have access. You want them to have access, and you're worried about the resources availability to Bob. We can also articulate other things, like bounded safety. Can anyone besides you and me ever get access? Or liveness. Will there always be somebody that has access? Or mutual exclusion. Can anyone ever be both a buyer and an accountant? Now, all of the ones that I've listed so far have the characteristic that they compare the uh, membership of a role to a constant set of uh, principles. In the last two, we actually will compare two different classes or roles. Uh, So we can say, for instance, will all managers always have access? So we're comparing managers and those that have access. And in the very last one, can anyone who is not an employee ever get access? So these have, respectively, the flavor of uh, availability and safety. So to make the, um, the problem concrete, we study it in uh, RT0. And policy states are given by RT0 policies. The restriction rule that I talked about, which uh, defines how policies can evolve in an uncontrolled way, is given by two sets, G which is a set of roles that uh, whose definitions are assumed not to grow during the course of uncontrolled uh, evolution, and shrink-restricted sets S, which uh, the analysis assume, assumes will not have uh, their statements removed or their definitions removed from the state. There are going to be three different forms of queries, membership, boundedness, and containment. You'll notice that... Uh, Membership and boundedness, basically, they compare uh, a given role, a dot r, to a a specific set of uh, given principles, d1 through dn. So on the left, we ask whether a dot r, I'm sorry, on the first one, we ask whether a dot r contains uh, d1 through dn as a subset. And in the other case, we ask whether a dot r is bounded by the set. D1 through Dn. Now, the, th- the third uh, is actually strictly more general. It asks whether the role x.u uh, contains A.r as a subset. And it can be used to capture membership and boundedness queries, but uh, we distinguish it uh, from, or we distinguish the first two cases because they can actually be solved in polynomial time, as we'll see. So let me just work a couple of examples for you quickly. Um, the idea here, I'm going to give you uh, a, a policy and a restriction rule, and then we'll pose a couple of queries and see how it works. The idea here is that the system administrator, SA, has a resource, and he grants access to uh, the resource to everybody that HR says is a manager and to everybody that an a manager says should have access, provided that person is uh, an employee. HR says you're an employee if you're a manager or a programmer. Alice is a manager. Bob and Carl Car- are programmers. And Alice says that Bob should have access. So currently, Bob does have access. And then G and S uh, define the restriction rule. And we'll uh, play with him them in a minute. Um, the first example asks the a simple safety query is it possible that Eve should uh gain access to the resource and the answer to this is yes because the first um the first statement up there says that any manager has access and we can actually HR can add a uh statement defining hr.manager at any time in an uncontrolled way. Uh, so the analysis has to take that into consideration. And the reason that we know that can add it in an uncontrolled way is that hr.manager is not included in G. The simple second query asks a simple availability question. Is it necessary that Alice has access? Will she always have access? And the answer to that is, again, yes, because of the the two uh, statements shown in red here give Alice access now. And the fact that uh, they're both, they both define shrink-restricted roles means that those clauses or those statements won't go away in the future. So the third example illustrates containment, the most powerful form. It asks whether those who can get access are always going to be employees. And um, the answer to this turns out to be yes. They, basically, there's no way to get access besides by these first two uh, rules. And that's because uh, SA access is growth restricted. So we won't get any more statements uh, defining it. If you get a, gain access by using the second rule, you're clearly an employee because of this intersection. And if you gain it by the first, then you're a manager. And by the uh, third statement, you are therefore an employee. And that employee definition is not going to go away because this is shrink-restricted. So that's going to remain the case. So let me give you an idea of how this can be used. I mean, this is one of many possibilities. An organization has many principles to whom it entrusts the. preservation of the policy state, but it has some ideas of um, sanity checks for what a good policy ought to do. You know, bad guys shouldn't get access and key guys should have access to critical resources, that kind of thing. So what the organization does is he formalizes these as analysis problems together with acceptable answers, either yes or no, and um, then trusts the principles in his organization to run the analysis uh, before they actually make any policy changes and only commit the changes if the, they will uh, preserve the requirements. So the evaluation of uh, membership and boundedness queries can be done efficiently by using two non-standard logic programming semantics for uh, program P. And I won't go into them uh, here. Containment queries, on the other hand, their complexity or the complexity of uh, the analysis problem depends on the sublanguage. So if we if we call this basic RT, it contains only facts and simple delegations. RT with linking, RT with intersection, and RT with both is just all of RT zero. And here are the results. It turns out that uh, there are polynomial algorithms for basic RT. And then, if you add linking, the complexity jumps up to P space complete. If you add intersection, it becomes co NP complete. And if you add both, we don't have a lower bound, but we know it's in co non deterministic exponential time. OK, so at this point, I want to switch gears and talk about the fact that when um, using credentials in order to gain authorization in an open system uh, you may not wish to trust the recipient of these credentials with everything you've got because the credentials themselves may be sensitive we want a way to establish trust between strangers uh, that somehow preserves the uh, privacy requirements on the um, these sensitive attributes and shares them only with authorized entities. So the approach that we take uh, is really somewhat uh, simplistic. but It seems to work quite well in most cases. Credentials are treated as uh, protected resources. So access control policies are established for them, just like they are for other protected resources. And then automated trust negotiation is our Technique that uh, consists of a bilateral credential exchange in which the negotiators seek to establish mutual trust incrementally. Now, the simplest strategy that you can use for this is uh, called the Eager Strategy. In it, negotiators take turns sending all the unlocked credentials. So, uh, negotiator one sends all the credentials that he basically considers public information. Then, negotiator two replies with all of his public credentials, plus any that have been unlocked by Negotiators 1 public credentials. These may unlock additional credentials from Negotiator 1, and so on, until either the uh, access control policy associated with the resource is satisfied and the negotiation succeeds, or else no further credentials can be exchanged, in which case the negotiation fails. The eager strategy was introduced uh, by us in this paper here, uh, which appeared at DARPA's, uh, the DARPA Information Survivability Conference and Exposition in uh, the year 2000. Um, It's not a really prestigious venue, but I'm uh, pleased to report that it's had 34 citations listed in Sightseer at this point. So I think that uh, a lot of people have been interested in um, the trust negotiation stuff. Um, there are several results in the paper about the EAGER tr- strategy. First of all, it's complete in the sense that it'll find uh, a negotiation whenever a sequence of disclosures uh, exists that is safe. It's efficient in the sense that the number of rounds is at most linear in the number of credentials. And uh, it's safe in a way that I'd like to uh, basically spend the rest of the talk discussing. So. What do I, what's the intuition? We don't want to share credential content with people that aren't authorized for it. But it turns out that the original notion of correctness or safety for automated trust negotiation doesn't really achieve this goal of protecting sensitive credentials. Now, uh, Ninghui and I in um, the year 2000 proposed a a method that I'll show you that uh, sought to protect attributes better but we, we still didn't have a formal definition of what safety ought to mean. And then this year in uh, the Oakland Conference, we uh, presented a uh, formal uh, statement of what, the, uh, of what safety should require. And um, that's actually going to be the, the, the crux of this part of the talk. And then I'll also mention a recent journal submission in which we show that uh, um, a practical negotiation strategy based on RT satisfies the requirement. And so we might conjecture that the requirement is um, achievable. But there have been a lot of negotiation strategies proposed that don't satisfy it. And uh, here are some of those, um, including... uh, one that I introduced myself uh, back in 2000. What all of these uh, have in common is that um, they establish access control policies that are used to control the, disclo- the uh, disclosure of credentials in the sense of handing over the credential. And um, the way that they, the, the reason that they ran into troubles, where actually the uh, EAR strategy did not, is that they seek to focus credential disclosures on credentials that are somehow relevant to the requested resource and satisfying its access control policy. And thus, policy content needs to flow in order to uh, focus the the credential disclosures. Um, A couple of these pieces of work, the uh, third and fourth, actually uh, discuss the fact that the policies themselves may be sensitive, um, which I think is a a very important and interesting point, but not one that I'll uh, dwell on further here. They all used the original notion of uh, safety for credential disclosures, which is unfortunately inadequate. It said that a credentials access control must be control policy must be satisfied before the credential is disclosed. But it doesn't say exactly what disclosed means. And using any of the strategies on the previous slide, the negotiator's behavior actually reveals a great deal about his negotiator his credentials no matter who he's negotiating with, even if they're not authorized for the credential content. Let me show you what I mean. Here Bob has a credential he received from the Internal Revenue Service that says he's got low income. Maybe he can use it online to get uh, pro bono legal assistance or uh, things of that nature. But he goes, oh, and he considers it to be sensitive. So he establishes an access control policy for this credential that says he'll only share it with not-for-profits. He goes to a, uh, a real estate agent Uh, swampland.com and requests some property listings at which point swampland initiates a trust negotiation with him saying I'd like to see your low income credential now using any of those uh, strategies in effect what Bob does is to give a counter request saying well I'd like to see your not for profit credential and the problem is now swampland knows that Bob has low income because if Bob didn't he'd behave like Alice who also doesn't, and just basically fail or give no response uh, to the request request for the low income credential. So in the policy 2000 paper, we sought to protect attributes by introducing what we call acknowledgment policies. So these are by contrast with access control policies. And they're associated with attributes rather than credentials. And that enables you to uh, establish them, whether or not you actually have uh, the the credential. So what what an acknowledgement policy does is to authorize knowing whether or not the negotiator has the given attribute. I won't tell you whether I've got it unless you satisfy my ACT policy. During a negotiation, I can show you the ACT policy for my uh, low income credential without implying that I have it. That's because I could easily have established it without having it. And this work was um, uh, published in the IEEE workshop on policy. Um, So here, Alice may also consider her income to be sensitive information and establish an ACT policy for it that, Uh, says she'll only share that with not-for-profits and if she does so then her behavior is exactly identical to that of Bob's now detractors have argued that people that have nothing to hide won't bother to use acknowledgement policies thereby casting suspicion on those that do use them but there's a key observation here which is which shows why in fact I think they're workable Anyone wishing to protect any sensitive attribute whatsoever has to protect some attributes about which he has nothing to hide. Otherwise, the mere fact that he's protecting one attribute indicates he's got something to hide there, and you can tell uh, maybe his attribute there isn't so favorable. And, and probably guess what it is, for that matter. So uh, in this context, If suitable acknowledgement policies were available, widely available for all attributes, the simplest approach would simply be to enforce them all. Okay? So our solution is let's make them widely available and uh, achieve that by making ACT policy design part of attribute vocabulary design. A uh, reference to an attribute has to contain somehow a reference to The vocabulary that's used in the um, attribute to avoid name collisions. So, if we include with the vocabulary an acknowledgement policy, then when you ask me for any attribute, even if I've never heard of it before, I can just go to that URL, retrieve the acknowledgement policy, and serve it to you. So, in uh, the Oakland paper, we formalized. uh, an intuitive safety requirement for protecting attributes. This is the paper, Safety in Automated Trust Negotiation. And I'd like to quickly run through the, f- the framework so that I can uh, state the, um, the safety requirement for you. Basically, a negotiator is assumed to have a configuration G, which gives a principal K that he has control over, and a set of credentials that he owns, E. Plus, there's a table of policies and a mapping from attributes to their acknowledgement policies. What can adversaries do? Well, we model them as sets of principles and their credentials, so they may be able to collude. Uh, Multiple um, principles may be colluding. And what we... Assume an attacker can do is to issue an attack sequence consisting of a, a sequence of uh, K messages. And the attack sequence can either be an active one, in which case the attacker is playing the role of a resource requester, or it can be a passive attack sequence, in which case he's playing the role of a access Uh, I'm sorry, an access mediator or a a resource provider. Um, Now, not all attack sequences are feasible because uh, the attack sequence is going to use credentials, and we need to include an assumption that says he doesn't forge credentials, that that's not realistic. So uh, we just say that an attack sequence is feasible for M uh, if uh, the, the messages can be efficiently computed by M. Now, what information is effectively hidden from an adversary? We assume that all he can see is the negotiation. So a given strategy, for a given strategy, two configurations, G and G prime, are indistinguishable using that strategy with M if for every feasible attack sequence, the response induced from G and G prime are the same. Okay, so that's how we formalize the idea that all the attacker can see is your uh, negotiation interaction. What doesn't need to be hidden? Well, an attribute T is acknowledgeable to an attacker M or an adversary M if M possesses attributes that satisfy the acknowledgement policy of T. And releasable credentials are just those that define no unacknowledgeable attributes. So now I can say I can articulate the uh, safety requirement. We call it credential combination hiding. And this is a property of strategies. A strategy is credential combination hiding safe if, for every pair of configurations g and g prime, where the uh, acknowledgment policies agree, because acknowledgment policies have to be uh, something that you see, and Given any adversary M, if the credentials that are releasable to M uh, using G's credentials are the same as those using G primes, then G and G prime have to be indistinguishable uh, by M when you're using that strategy. Okay. Now, we came up with some alternative formulations to see whether. Uh, it had to be this strong we tried a couple of weaker formulations that didn't focus on the credentials but just on the attributes and uh, we there was one that looked at uh, hiding combinations of attributes and one that looked at just hiding individual attributes but in the end they all turned out to be inadequate for our purposes which gave gives us some confidence that we have sort of hit the notion about right it's probably not stronger than it needs to be. Now, um, we recently, uh, after the Oakland conference, we submitted a, a journal version of the paper that it kind of included some of the uh, the policy workshop paper and added a new result, which says that our safety result is satisfied by essentially the um, uh, negotiation strategy that we introduced in the Policy 2000 paper. Um, so that's the theorem. Our RT-based strategy is credential combination hiding safe. And we submitted that to TISIC. And the reason that that was kind of interesting and tricky is that RT is an inferential system. So if I want to protect A dot R, I may actually have to protect B dot R1 as well, if we have A dot R includes B dot R1. Inferences can be made by uh, an adversary, both in a forward direction and in a, a backward direction. So we had to come up with a kind of closure operation on the um, acknowledgment policies, uh, which um, took care of that. So I'm I'm at the end. And what I've told you about is uh, three problems. First of all, providing a language for authorization policy to support collaboration and open systems. This is the RT language. Then techniques for understanding and managing policy. This is the security analysis work. And then finally, uh, trust negotiation techniques and in particular requirements for protecting sensitive uh, credential content. Um, The work was funded by DARPA and by uh, the NSF and uh we have a uh medium-sized ITR that uh just started last year um this is something that uh, professor lee and i are uh cooperating in along with several others listed here and um one angle that i think is uh interesting for future work is based on the security policy management stuff or um Basically, I'd like to have an assistant that could automatically generate proposals about how to guarantee security requirements are met. So you remember that I uh, had this usage case where um, an organization could define a bunch of requirements and then entrust to the uh, uh, trusted collection of principles to uh, preserve those requirements. Well, those principles might like a tool to help them do that, if they try to write some policy that turns out to violate the uh, requirements, they'd like to know why and if it's possible to fix things up. Um, and if not, why not? Another thing that's uh, interesting here is insider threat assessment. So um, we've assumed that the trusted guys aren't going to change things, but suppose that they start making changes uh that they shouldn't? How much damage could they do to you? Can they compromise all your resources? Uh, We need to be able to assess one's exposure to individuals or colluding groups of insiders, and um, possibly to suggest ways of reducing one's exposure, for example, by introducing separation of duties. And then clearly, we need uh, heuristics for the um, intractable queries that we were talking about. So I think I'll leave it there. I'd like to know if uh, anybody has any questions for me.
0: Yeah, one. Uh, this, this seems to have a lot of things in common with the inference problem in multi-level secure databases. That was a pretty strong area of research maybe ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, except that the the security policy there. Or, or the dis- disclosure policy, was, it was very different from, from what you're looking at. And I'm wondering, have you looked to see whether there's things other than policy negotiation where these models and, and approaches might be applicable in terms of other confidentiality situations? I mean, I.
1: I haven't found any. I've, I've looked. Um, now, Ninghui, you've been looking at this, too, with, with me. Uh, uh, do you have uh, any thoughts about that?
0: So I think there's certainly some similarities, uh, the, the This uh, kind of correctness requirement uh, for trust negotiation is uh, very much related to information flow um, mm. security, the definition It turns out to be quite similar to definition of non-interference and uh, uh, non-deductibility, but I'm not sure how you can apply this to other other areas. I mean, just it seems to me some. I mean, intuitively, it seems like there ought to be other areas where this, other areas where confidentiality is not absolute, Mm -hmm. where this would provide a way to model. And, uh, and and I'm not sure what they are, but I just think it may be, and they I mean, have wider applicability than. You're, you're working on some uh, language based uh, security, right? Integrating some of
1: in that. Right? Yeah. I mean, th- that's actually um, following the kind of work that Andrew Myers has been doing for several years. And um, the idea there is that you uh, would like to be able to. Control not just somebody's access to information but what they can do with the information after they get it so uh, but in that context i the main thing that I'm uh, looking at applying from this work is um, the the kind of uh, principal hierarchies that are uh, Possible in the RT system uh, rather than some aspect of the uh, negotiation. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate your attention.